Lord, we worship you. You are good. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence with us. We thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for your promises to us. Any among us, Lord, right now who may be feeling unworthy or rejected, I ask that you would touch the heart of that one. Let them know that you're inviting them in, drawing them close in order to forgive, in order to fulfill, to redeem and reward, because that's just who you are. You are a good, good God. Oh, come, let us adore him. We adore you, Jesus. Speak to us through your word and by your spirit today that we might be equipped and enabled to be better servants of yours and witnesses for you in the world. Amen. It's the second Sunday in Advent, the second week of Advent, a time of waiting. We are in a time of waiting. Advent is a time of waiting, of expectant waiting. Some of you have been following along with me through a series of Advent devotionals that I have been writing this week. If you're interested in reading those and praying with me through these days of preparation for Christmas, you can do that by visiting our Facebook page or Instagram, or I'm also going to be uh, putting those devotions onto the, my pastor's blog. But if you have any difficulty finding them and you'd like to track with that in these days while we wait in worship with expectation, you can contact the church or contact me directly. I'll be happy to help you find how you can access those. You may have other devotional material that you're using during this time of Advent. I would encourage you to have something that has you every day in the Word as you wait because one of the things that we focused on in the devotions over this past week and that I want to reiterate today is that there is a purpose in our waiting. It is not just standing by, but rather pressing in. We're in a season of waiting that is holy and consecrated for the celebration of the coming of Christ. Both the fact that he came in the past, which is why we have hope for the future, and also that he has promised to come again. And given that so many promises were made about his first coming and all fulfilled miraculously and majestically, then you and I can also be confident that the promises that he has made about coming again will be fulfilled as well. And so we wait in the recognition of that reality, preparing ourselves and alerting the world to this glorious good news, but also to all that it calls us to, to lives of worship. And that's a meaningful promise for right now. So he's fulfilled the promises of the past. You can be confident that he will fulfill the promises of the future. And you can be comforted in his promised presence right now. For he is the Lord God who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus himself says to you and I as followers of him, I will be with you always. We're in a time of waiting in more ways than one. It's not just the season of Advent. It's also the circumstance of our world right now, isn't it? We're waiting, waiting for what's next, for the next announcements, for the next actions, waiting for cures for COVID, waiting for a calming of crises, or maybe there's some among us who feel like, well, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop, waiting for a collapse. That kind of waiting is usually worrying. Or, in any case, there is in it something diminishing and helpless and hopeless. But that isn't the kind of waiting that you and I are called to. In fact, it's precisely in a moment like that that our faith becomes such a bright light in our life and the Word of God such a steady, strong bulwark. So we come to Him and worship Him because he is the light that will guide our way. He's the one who will show us not only how to wait, but how to make that waiting fruitful. You know, a harvest is a season of waiting. It's waiting for the seed that was sown to grow. It's waiting for the fruit that was promised by that seed to show. And yet the farmer doesn't wait without doing anything. The farmer waits by working. 
by weeding, by tending, by actively engaging in the harvest that is coming. It's a Christmas harvest that we're talking about in these days. And as we enter into this second week, we're going to look at the gifts of the Magi. The, the mission of the Magi, those wise men of the East, is really a theme for us throughout this year's Advent season. And their mission is fulfilled in an act of worship in the home of Jesus, the infant child of Joseph and Mary, in which they give extraordinary and extravagant gifts. And they give these to Jesus and his family because they recognize that Jesus is a king, that Jesus is a savior. Each one of the gifts has not only practical portent, it, it provides pragmatic uh, resource that the family will need and use. The gifts also have symbolic significance. Today we're going to look at the gift of gold, but as we do so, I want to uh, remind you of what we've been talking about already uh, in the first week of Advent as a kind of an ongoing structure for us. By the way, if you're ever interested in downloading the, the uh, weekly bulletins, you can do that from our website, and you may find that particularly useful during this series because there's a lot of information that we're talking about from week to week, and a lot of it will be reiterated. The benefit of that is that the more that we go over it together, the more that it connects in our soul. But it, I don't want to constantly be uh, deluging you with data and information. So you may find it useful to have that uh, the bulletin to kind of follow along with and have as a reference or make your notes. You can also download these slides from our website. Of course, Advent is this season that we're in that we've been talking about, and it is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. It's a time of anticipation, as we've described, anticipating, celebrating, but also actively worshiping in our waiting. There's a message in the Magi mission that reiterates the fundamental message of Advent. The fact that these men are not uh, Jewish people, they are Gentiles, they come from a foreign nation, they come from serving a different king, and yet they come to worship this Jewish king because they recognize that this Jewish king, the Jewish Messiah, is a savior for all peoples. They recognize that because indeed the Hebrew scriptures uh, identify the Messiah as a savior for all peoples and as in fact a light to all nations a light that will banish all darkness and a harvest. There is a harvest in the life of Jesus, in the coming of the bread of heaven. In fact, did you know that Bethlehem means house of bread? And that's where Jesus is born. The seed, the word. In the beginning was the word. The logos is the Greek term there. And it's Jesus Christ. He himself is God. And yet he has come as the word of God, a seed sown into the earth of our world and brought forth in resurrection as the first fruit of a harvest, the firstborn of many brethren. Christmas is good news all year round. And it refers to a harvest that is eternal. So a savior for all peoples. That's who we worship. That's who saved us. That's who's coming for us. A light. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot comprehend or overcome it. And a harvest of hope worthy of celebrating. This Christmas harvest series calls us to trust God for our help. Now, that's, that's simply what I read in the message of what we are looking at together in the Christmas story. And yet, isn't that all the more true in seasons of time, such as what you and I are living through right now? There are so many things that can feel so unstable, that may have you agitated, irritated, worried. And God is saying, trust me. In the midst of all of that, look to me. In me, you will find strength and security, stability. But it does require trust from us. It requires us to accept that his promise is reliable. It requires us to walk according to the guidance of his light. 
When the wise men saw that star in the sky, it was not only a sign to them out of the scriptures, because it had been promised in the scriptures as we looked at together last week in the book of Numbers, but it was also a, a guidance for them as they walked, as they waited, as it were. But they were not waiting idly either. They were going and they were following the light that the Lord was granting to them, light that gave them a pathway for hope. There is a pathway in every harvest. Have you ever driven by the harvest fields of whatever kind of crop you might think of? I suppose it could be alfalfa or lettuce, or it could be strawberries, or it could be almond trees. You'll notice that it's always these rows, very neatly organized. When you drive by, you can see them sort of just spinning past, almost like an index or something. And you can look down as you come to the center of each row, you can see an aisle, you know, very straight path. The, the reason for that, I presume, is that it enhances the capacity to multiply that harvest. You can plant more of whatever you're planting when you plant it in that orderly, organized way. And it allows access in the harvest. So you can harvest more of what has been multiplied in that growth by having it organized that way. And it gives you a, a, a path line, a plow line, a way to walk, a way to go that multiplies the benefit of what has been grown there. That's what God does in our lives. He brings order and organization. He's been bringing order to the chaos from the beginning. And the way that he orders things not only gives us a path, but makes that path plentiful through multiplication. And his light is a path. It shines on that path. It shines in a way that enables us to have the hope in which we trust in him. We looked last week at Isaiah chapter 9 that says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. It's one of the great messianic messages of the Old Testament. And right there in verse 3, we are told that this great light brings forth great rejoicing as in a harvest, because a child is being born to us. And the Magi must have been familiar with this message too, because they see that that child, that son that is given, is also a governor, a ruler. The government will be on his shoulders. He'll be a wonderful counselor. That's what they are, but he'll be even greater. He'll be a mighty God. That's what they're coming to worship. He'll be an everlasting father. Not only the ruler in the highest vaults of heaven, but also the one who holds you closest to himself in the embrace of a father's love and a prince of peace. In other words, there is a kingdom that he rules over and that kingdom is peace, his peace. As the light rises in our world, in our recognition, it's light that gives us guidance and it's light that gives us hope. And it, it's light that calls us on a mission, on a pathway of proclamation to say, this is the Prince of Peace. This is where peace is found. How can you find peace? You come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you will find the Prince of Peace. So last week, as we focused on the productive nature of God's word, it's a seed sown that even when you can't see it growing, it is still producing and it will multiply. We see that that seed of faith of God is productive because it is, in fact, Jesus Christ who secures our faith. He's the light that shines in the darkness. He's our Savior. He's our Redeemer. That was last week. I want to press ahead a little further to look at this verse in Isaiah 9 because every week, as we are talking about the mission of the Magi and the message that we see and the gifts that they bring, we're also talking about how there is a story of the light shining and growing in the midst of this worship. Isaiah 9, verse 7, at the beginning of the verse says, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So we've seen that there is a child that is going to be born and that child is a ruler. And the government that is established through and by that child, upon that child, on his shoulders, as it were, is a government that will be of peace, that will be eternal, and in the notion of greatness is also 
the notion of multiplication. In other words, it's a kingdom that spreads, that grows, like light spreading in the darkness. The light not only shines as it rises, but that light rules. It brings order. It brings multiplication. And you and I have an action involved, an action of worship to participate in that. Jesus says, when you have need, ask. Ask of the Lord, and it will be given to you. Seek. Like the Magi sought the scriptures in order to search the skies to see the star that rises, so you and I are to seek God in his scriptures, to seek in our world for how those scriptures and his spirit relate to the present application of how we are to live. And as we do that, as we seek God, we find him. You will seek me and find me, says the Lord in the book of Jeremiah, when you seek me with all your heart, when you worship me with everything you've got. Then you will find me. Expect that. Knock and the door will be open to you. Does anybody knock on a door when they know that no one is inside? It's not very logical, right? Knocking is a sign of expectation. Someone is inside that is going to open this door. Ask, seek, and knock, and expect for God to answer, to open the door wide, and to say to outsiders, come in, come in. The Lord of the harvest is ready to celebrate with you. I want to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 9 that relates to the notion of this multiplying kingdom and just how passionate Jesus is about it. In coming weeks, as we advance further in the Isaiah passage, you will see that what the Lord says is the way that this is going to be accomplished, the way that this son is going to be born, a child to a virgin, a king born in a, in a, in a manger, thank you, the way that this is going to be accomplished and the way that this kingdom will expand like light in the darkness is through the zeal of the Lord. It is through the zeal, the passion of God Almighty. That's an indicator of the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord desires to save people, desires to make a productive and plentiful life for every one of his children. Jesus had this Spirit in him. Jesus operated according to that anointing. Jesus had that mentality. He desired to help, and when he saw people in need, he was moved to the uttermost deeply within. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's the kingdom that will expand and increase and have no end. He's the prince of peace proclaiming the kingdom of God. And he is demonstrating the reality that the kingdom is here through healing of every kind of disease and sickness. We know that he was casting out evil spirits. He was teaching the people. He was healing the people. He even fed the people, right? Thousands upon thousands from very limited resource because as they gave it to God, God multiplied what they had, fishes and loaves. And throughout all of this, Jesus had compassion on the people. Verse 36 there of Matthew 9. He had compassion on the people because he saw their desperate need and he saw their desperation. They were distressed and dispirited like sheep without shepherd. Right and left today, you and I can look around and see people distressed and dispirited, confused and chaotic like sheep without a shepherd. And you and I, we could be irritated by that, or worried, or afraid. Or we could ignore it and say, I've got my God. I know where my hope is. Sorry for you lot, but oh well. Or we could say, what can I do about that? But what Jesus had in his heart was a compassion that called for prayer and called for witness. He said the the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Maybe today you're one of those people that's feeling distressed and dispirited. Don't be ashamed if that's the case. I can relate to that too. 
We all go through periods like that. And right now in these days, many of us are struggling with the waiting. How long is this going to go on? How long? How far does this have to go? What about all the problems, economic, social, and, 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 and societal, that are roiling through our world right now? You may feel distressed. You may feel dispirited. But the Lord Jesus looks to you with compassion and with courage and with a promise that there is a bountiful, plentiful harvest. But there are few people who see it, willing to believe it. So if you are among those who recognize that reality, pray to the Lord of the harvest for more to have their eyes opened, to see the reality of what worshiping the Lord produces, of what serving the Lord provides, because there will be more workers for the harvest when there are more followers of the Lord, when there are more who trust themselves, all that they have and all that they are to God. The Magi were like that. They came at great expense to themselves across great distance with great risk to greatly humble themselves in front of a very humble child. Imagine the counselors of kings coming to a family that is a peasant family and bowing down before an infant child and offering that child and his family extraordinary gifts. It is a recognition of the reality of God's word and the worthiness of his worship that they do that. And in fact, their mission relates to this idea of multiplication because they already are more workers in a harvest that God had began through his people Israel. We, we talked uh, last week about how they became exposed to the scriptures of God when the people of God, the Jewish people, were in exile in Babylon. And these Eastern governors or these Eastern uh, courts became exposed, the scholars of those courts became exposed, not only to the scriptures of the Hebrew Bible, but also to the witness of God at work among faithful Hebrew people, like, for instance, Daniel. And that witness was so durable and so powerful that even hundreds of years later, these magi have now followed the guidance of the word and the guidance of the star and the guidance of the spirit to come from afar to worship the Lord. They are themselves the, 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 the multiplied worshipers of God from outside the nation, from outside the, the culture, because he's a savior to all people. And so they also believe that by making the worship that they are going to make, by showing the honor that they are going to show, by giving the gifts that they are also investing in this king and this kingdom. They are saying, we believe in you, we honor you. And that is a kind of productive promise that produces a plentiful harvest. The worship and witness of the Magi is a model to you and I of what it means to be people who follow the light of the Lord and live according to his word and his spirit. These, as I mentioned, are men from the East scholarly advisors who came to know the scriptures through a time of darkness in the life of Israel, and yet God used it to make the light of his word and of his lordship even brighter. They show not only the invitation to the Gentiles, that's most of us, um, which is not by any means to say that the Jewish people have no access to the Jewish Savior, they do, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. All peoples are brought into this invitation to worship the Lord. It's also a model for us of the adoration of kings. The scriptures describe over and over that Jesus would be adored by the rulers of foreign nations as well as by uh, the leaders of his own. And while that is a process still at work, what we see in the Magi is the seed of that witness and the reality of that promise. Now, we've been talking in this series about what their worship conveys, and that's probably the bulk of what we're really digging into here in these uh, weeks of looking at the Magi mission. So they followed the star until it came and arrived at the place where the child was. Now, this is where they are going to give the gifts, but before we move on from looking at the star as a 
uh, primary symbol of their story, I want to uh, call out for you several aspects of it that we can see. As I've mentioned, the only reason that they knew about the star is because they knew the word of the Lord. So there is in the star a symbol for you and I of how significant the scriptures are to be in our regular life, in our daily living, and in guiding our worship. The scriptures are a star of God's light to you and I, uh, a, a north star, uh, a navigational star. It's a practical means by which you can know the nature of what God is like. You can see the evidence of what God has done. You can become familiar with the promises that God makes and the warnings that God gives so that you and I can live in a way that reflects his will. You know, so many of us feel like we'd like to have a better idea of what God is doing in our lives. We'd like to know him better, feel more intimately close to him. The word is where that can happen. It's not the only way that it happens, but I don't think that it can happen without the word. The word will lead us into worship. The word will lead us into prayer and empower our prayer and inform our prayer. The word becomes an encounter place with God. There are so many times when I'm reading the word and I recognize this passage that I'm in, just part of my regular devotional plan, is speaking exactly to what I need today. Sometimes it's the word of encouragement that'll bring me to tears. And that's the Lord. And you just feel the grace of God saying, hey, I see where you're at and I know and I have compassion for you and I want to bring the harvest to bear in your life right now. Sometimes it's the corrective word of God. I think maybe some of us refuse to read the scripture more deeply because we're afraid that God is going to come and say, there are things in your life that are wrong. There is disorder and dispiritedness in your life, and I want to bring order and right spirit to it. But why would you want to reject that? Well, because I don't want to, I don't want to hear that God's not happy or not pleased. But if God's not happy or pleased with something that you're doing, some attitude you have, some behavior engaged in, you don't really want to keep on doing that. Because if you do, then you're sowing to that harvest. And that's a harvest of destruction. The reason that God is displeased with it is because his heart is for you, not against you. It's because he desires more for you. He desires that you would be plentiful. He desires that you would be bountiful. He wants you to have clarity, not confusion. The word can be a wonderful place to recognize the gentle, yet firm correction of God, so essential to the, the maturity of our lives. So the star is connected to and symbolic of the scriptures, and yet also of the natural world around us and how God works in that realm to evidence who he is and to guide us. You know, these men were very well versed in the natural sciences of their time, the astronomy, uh, and probably other uh, scientific uh, endeavors. Now, when I say scientific, obviously I'm referring to that in a more ancient way, not a modern kind of scientific methodology that would be familiar to formal professional scientists today. But nevertheless, the rudimentary philosophical uh, um, and, and uh, empirical um, process is evident in the, the type of learning that they had and the, 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 uh, the mission that they make. Because not only are they you know, in the scriptures, but they don't just have their head buried there. They're looking around at the world and saying, where do we see what God says here evident around us? How do we apply what is said here to what we see in the skies above and in the world around us? There's a practical, pragmatic aspect to God that I think sometimes we as Christians, and maybe even especially charismatic Pentecostal Christians, can forget that God works not only in mysterious ways, but very natural ones. Sometimes the greatest gift of God is just something very simple. Just the other day, I felt the Lord say to me as I was dealing with some things and I was very distressed, and the Lord said to me, why don't you just go to bed. You know, it's a little bit late. You're a little bit tired. Why don't you just get some rest? That, that sort of inner prompting of the Lord that reminded me sometimes just a good meal, 
Sometimes just a hug with your wife or your husband or your kids. Sometimes just, just, just read a page of scripture and calm yourself. Maybe sometimes just a walk in the woods or a walk on the road or some time taking a nap. Hey, it can be a blessing. <laughs> I believe in naps. I think God is the God of naps too. Now, that doesn't mean, I'm not gonna take one right now, right? But maybe later. In other words, the natural world is made by God. He loves it and he's involved in it. And you can find evidence of him all around in it. When Paul wrote to the, the Christians in Rome, the first chapter of the book of Romans, which by the way, we're going to go through, God willing, as a series together next year in 2021, we're gonna work our way through the book of Romans, a wonderful pinnacle of Paul's scripture writing and an absolutely extraordinary magisterial message of God to his people of all time. And Paul begins by saying that all of creation testifies to God. Are you listening to it? Are you seeing it? I love to look at the stars in the sky. I love to look at photos of them. I love to see the moon. I love to see a sunrise and experience the closeness of God and hear the voice of God and feel encouragement from God. There's natural guidance and yet there is indeed supernatural guidance as well. And those are not in contradiction. In fact, the supernatural guidance is just supernatural. It's just so fully aligned with the God of creation and so fully filled with his plentiful promise that there are times where God will guide us in ways that go beyond explanation but operate in the realm of faith. Now, it will always be consistent with the scriptures. It will never be in contradiction to his word or to his spirit. But there is a real help of God to you right where you are right now by his Holy Spirit to do things that can't be explained. We were praying for healing earlier. Receive that. Believe that. God heals bodies. He has healed mine. God heals relationships. God heals situations, circumstances. You think, I can't believe I failed that class. I can't believe I lost that job. God can change that situation. Now, it may not be the change that exactly you expect or want or on your timeline. It's not God coming beholden to you to work some kind of magic by waving a wand and giving you whatever you want. But there is in you giving all of that over to God, the reality that as you give him, not only your gold, but your grief, not only your goals, but also your problems, he will work miraculously and sometimes supernaturally to turn situations around. And even if you would say it may not be so supernatural as a star appearing in the sky or an angel appearing in your room, although I wouldn't rule those things out, but it's true, most of us don't have that happening every day, and yet almost all of us who have followed the way of the Lord for any amount of time can say, there are things that God has done that were just a miracle. It was just, he changed a situation, he changed a person's heart, he turned things around, I thought it was over, I thought it was done, I had messed up so bad, and God fixed it. He can do that for you, he will do that for you if you will trust in him. That's the light of the Lord breaking through into your life. And you know how we respond to that? With worship, with adoration. Because what we recognize is he has already reached out to us. He has already paved the way for us. These men, when they finally came to the place where the light shined, and there must be something rather supernatural about that. I believe there was a star astronomically in the heavens or some kind of astronomical event, maybe the confluence of planets. I mentioned in my, in my uh, uh, devotional uh, writing earlier this week that later this month, actually on the winter solstice, December 21st, there is going to be a closer alignment of Jupiter and Saturn than has been visible from here on Earth in uh, almost 400 years. Perhaps it was something like that that they saw. But when they came to the very house where Jesus and his family were staying, it can't be that a simple star aligns to a house, there must be some kind of miraculous manifestation that says this is not just the place, but this is the house, and in fact, this is the child. They come, and they bow down, 
and they present him their treasures. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When we are worshiping the Lord, there's a multiplication that comes. We bring our treasures to him because he has sent his treasure to us. There, before them, was the treasure of heaven, Jesus Christ. Nothing that they're bringing, as valuable as it is, can possibly outvalue the one that they are bringing it to. But they do it, nevertheless, because they want to show that they believe and they adore. So when you and I have that same attitude, we bring not only material wealth, giving of money to God, to the church, to missions, to missionaries, to people in need, Because when you give to someone uh, who is needy or poor, the scripture says you are lending to the Lord and he pays back with interest. When you show care to someone else, not only through money, but material resource, maybe simply through the gift of your time, time spent with somebody who is struggling, time spent with somebody where you are discipling them, helping them to know more about the word or to know more about the Lord, where you're sharing from your testimony is also giving to God. And your talent, every ability that you have, everything that you have innately as a character trait that is a strength, maybe you're really great with dealing with people and you're empathetic. Maybe you have a mind for numbers and you're very savvy with how to turn a dollar into a hundred. Maybe you have a gift for art. Maybe you're athletically skilled. Maybe you have the ability to organize people and to uh, instill vision in them. Maybe you have a a gift that you don't even think of as a gift, but you're somebody who knows how to make other people feel at ease or welcome in your home. Maybe you you make the best Thanksgiving dinner. If you do, I want to (laughs) know. Interested in that. But whatever your gift is, it came from God. But you've got natural gifts. Don't think that you don't. You were made in the image of God and you were invested with a productive promise from him that will be plentiful as you give it back to him. You have things that maybe it's not a natural trait or tendency, but you've worked hard. You've studied and gone to school to learn to be a teacher or a lawyer or a nurse or a doctor or whatever it is that you do. And those skills also came to you through God because God created the, the, the people who taught you God provided the resources that made it possible. God orchestrated and organized that in your life. And even if you've worked very hard at it, I'm sure you can recognize God was in it too. And then there are even supernatural spiritual gifts that you and I as believers are promised, not for the purpose of ourselves, but in order to give out to others. When the word of the Lord comes to you with a word of encouragement or a prophetic bit of guidance consistent with scripture and you are uh, in the position to be able to speak to someone else and share something with them that will encourage them, that will help clarify things for them. Maybe you're going to pray for somebody. Maybe there's a, a confident faith that the Lord gives you for the healing of somebody and you pray for them and there's a healing that occurs there. That is a gift of the Holy Spirit that has come to you for the benefit of others. So when you are engaging in all of those things, when your time and your talent and your treasure is going towards these good things that God has given to you in order to benefit others, you are worshiping the Lord. You are giving your gold to God when you do that. And there is a blessing. You're doing it because he already gave to you. The worship of the wise reflects this. The gifts that we are giving to God, they're nothing compared to what he's already given to us. We love because he first loved us. We have the ability to give freely because we have received freely. It's more blessed to give than to receive. God knows that. That's why Jesus gave himself. And yet there is a reward in giving. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full. These are the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6. Pressed down, shaken together. To make room for more. That's the shaking. By the way, these are harvest terms. This is what happens when you go out to harvest the grain and you bring it in and you shake it together so that you can get more into the bushel basket until it's overflowing into your lap. The amount you give will determine the amount you give back. And what you worship 
will be reflected in what you reap. Whatever you're sowing to, that's what you're growing in. If you're sowing to the flesh, you will reap the harvest of the flesh. If you give in to worry, you will reap multiplied worry. If you give in to anger, you will reap multiplied anger. Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. But if you sow to the Spirit, you'll live by the Spirit. And you'll grow in the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The harvest of faith is plentiful. It multiplies. The gifts of great value that the Magi offered to Jesus showed that they were putting their money where their mouth was. They had made that trip at all that cost. They had already invested, but they wanted to go an extra mile and say, we want to give more. In fact, each one of the gifts that they give not just the gold, but also the frankincense and the myrrh are all worth a great deal in the ancient world. The gold that they gave was probably gold coins. And that gold was very likely central to how the family of Jesus was able to sustain and survive during the time that was to come when they had to go down to Egypt. You'll remember that when the Magi came to Israel, they first came to the king, and Herod was not like these wise men of the East, although he pretended to be. But where they were ready to worship this new king, he wanted to put him to death. Talk about living by the sword. Herod lived and ruled by the sword. And you may say, well, he didn't die by the sword, but he did die. And his, his attitude was, this king that is being born is a threat. And I want to wipe that threat out. So though he lied to the Magi and said, tell me where he is so that I can come and worship him too, what they recognized by the discernment of the Spirit was Herod was not being honest. So they did not tell Herod where the child was. And because of that, Herod came up with another plan, which was to put to death every male child of the region that was two years old and younger, probably reflective of the amount of time since when the Magi had seen the star and made their journey to Israel. In any case, the Holy Spirit also would give discernment to Joseph so that he and Mary and Jesus fled the scene and were able to stay in Egypt. But that cost money to make that kind of journey and travel. And they were not people of means. You have to buy food. You have to find lodging. There may have been uh, fees for border crossings. It would be a dangerous journey and not an easy one. And once they were in Egypt, they had to set up there for some little while and then have money to come back. I don't know how much gold was given to the family, but it was probably very useful for them in that immediate moment. And that is a, a witness to us as well, isn't it? That, that God shows how when one person is worshiping the Lord and giving to another, God uses that in ways that go beyond what either of them probably could have anticipated in the moment. Even to you and I today, that gold still glitters because it shows for us the reality of how when we devote simple resources to God in real reverence for who he is and what he does, there's a consecration that comes. In fact, these simple resources of bread and juice, they're infinitely valuable when they're consecrated by the Christ. The gifts that were given were gifts that reflect that Jesus is a king. Gold is for kings. It came from kings. These wise men were probably not kings themselves. There may have been a prince or two there, but they, the gold that they had came from the treasury of the kings that they served. And yet they were bringing the gold of those kings to this king because this king they wanted to acknowledge as king of kings. The, the frankincense and the myrrh, we'll look at them in more depth in the coming weeks, but they reflect Jesus' role also as prophet and priest. But the gold that acknowledges that Jesus is a king, being given makes it clear that he is their king. You know, they were, they were uh, ambassadorial in their uh, effect. They were coming and representing another, another region and another regent. 
And it could have been simply a polite mechanism to say, we want to give honor here. But instead, they are humbling themselves in such a profound way that it makes it clear that by giving what they are giving and by worshiping as they're worshiping, they are saying, you are our righteous ruler. This little child is our ruler to whom we give our treasure. And so you and I, we are called to have that same hope and to have that same worship in that harvest of hope. Worshiping Jesus as our sovereign. I think it was in uh, England that the, the gold coinage used to be called gold sovereigns. It was called sovereign because sovereign means a king or a ruler. And the gold belonged to the king. It was minted by the king and held in the king's treasury and often had the king's face on it. And so what's really important about the gold is not just the beauty of its external appearance or the current market value of its material, but the fact of who it belongs to. And that's where your value and mine is plentiful and multiplied also. Not our outward appearance, not our market value standing in the world of what other people think about us, but what God says about us. When we belong to God, when he is our sovereign, your whole life is gold. Your whole life is treasure because your life is his. His life is in you. His harvest, the Lord of the harvest, bringing his plentiful harvest. So invest everything into his kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you because he is our righteous ruler. Take the bread that you have there and hold it before you. The ruler of all creation, the king of kings and lord of lords, came to earth as a little child, unable to feed himself, unable to change himself. He had to be fed and cared for by people. He had to learn to walk and learn to speak and live a life just like yours and mine. When it was cold, he got cold. When the day was long, he got tired. When people he loved died, he cried. When he saw injustice, it grieved him. When he saw people in need, he felt compassion. When he saw the cross, he despised its shame, not shame for himself. He was too humble to be disturbed by that. What he despised was the sin that it represented. He despised the brokenness and death and destruction and darkness that sin brings. And he despised it so much that he saw beyond the cross a harvest of hope that if he would go to the cross in the will of the Father, there would be salvation for his people. He's not just a ruler. He's a righteous ruler who broke himself on the cross so that you and I could be made whole. Lord, we thank you for your body, broken for us, given for us. More than gold is your body, more precious. We receive your body into ours right now, Lord, and ask that wherever we are broken, you would bring healing. Wherever we are disordered, you would bring right order. Wherever we are wandering, you would bring us back on path. This cup is a cup of the new covenant, and that's a promise. A covenant is a promise. And the promise is that no matter what your sins, they are forgiven in the flow of the blood of our righteous ruler, Jesus Christ. No matter how you've gone astray, this is the way to receive the assurance of your forgiveness in him and his investment in you. There's a holy transfusion to be had here. As Jesus takes away our sin, he gives us his righteousness and draws us together in him so that we're not alone. We're not isolated. We are one. Lord, we thank you for this cup 
We know it's a cup of waiting because you have said on that night when you raised it and blessed it that you would not drink from this cup again until you drink it with us in the kingdom of heaven. So it's not just us that are waiting for you. You also are waiting for us. You stand at the door knocking. And you say, anyone who will let me in, I will come in and sit down and dine with them. Lord, we thank you that you came to us and we give ourselves, all of ourselves to you as we take of this cup. Amen. I want to say one more thing before we conclude. This week, we're focused on the plentiful promise of God and on giving. I invite you that if there is an area of your life where you are struggling or where you are feeling discouraged or where you are having issues or problems, that you would ask the Lord to shine his light on what you can give as an act of faith and trust in him. For instance, if you have a financial need, I would suggest that you make a financial gift. And you say, well, sure, you're just saying that because you're the pastor of the church. I'm not saying you have to give to PCF, although it is a worthy gift. I'm not going to apologize for that. You could give to PCF, but there are other ways that you can give to the Lord or there may be a person in need. But if there's a financial need that you have, I would encourage you to make a financial gift according to the wisdom of the Lord. Not in some way that you think you're going to prove something to God and certainly not as some kind of transactional arrangement where you think God is going to owe you something, but rather as an act of worship by which you say, I believe you're going to help me out of that hole. I believe you're going to turn that situation around and I believe it so much I want to worship you by giving my gold to God in this by giving it in some good direction that is God-ordained, whether it's this church or another, whether it's this ministry or another, whether it's a person or a situation in need around you. But there may be other ways in which you could give. Maybe you are feeling discouraged and depressed. How about you spend some time helping someone else? I'm not saying you've never done that, but what I want to suggest is that sometimes when we are so down in the dumps about our own issues, what we really need is to help someone else. And you may say, how could I do that during this present circumstance? But you know, there are kids that need tutoring and you can do it through Zoom. There may be people in your workplace who are feeling discouraged and you're feeling discouraged too, but you give them your hope. You share with them a word of encouragement and see if that doesn't bring encouragement to you. Somewhere there is something that you can give. Is there someone who has wronged you and you're really feeling upset about that? Give forgiveness to them and find that that gold becomes plentiful in your life as you give away the right to be angry with them. They did wrong against you, but you are going to give them forgiveness. There are ways in which you can give that will bring a release to the particular problem and the Lord will show you. So I ask, Lord, that you would show us, each one of us, how we can give above and beyond an added measure of our worship to you in these days. And now may that Lord God who is so productive and plentiful in all of his promise give you assurance of his grace and hope and hold you securely in his hand in the days ahead. Amen. God bless you, church.